Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, but he told us where we stand. And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear. Claude Rains was the invisible man. Then something went wrong for Fay Ray and King Kong. They got caught in a cellular jam. Then at a deadly pace, it came from outer space. And this is how the message ran. We are back. We normally do obituaries in the third segment of today's show, but we today's kind of a special obituary, and I wanted to get to it straight away. Passing away last week was Forrest J. Ackerman at age 92, described as the sometime actor, comma, literary agent, comma, magazine editor, and writer who discovered author Ray Bradbury and was widely credited with coining the term sci-fi. Ackerman was legendary in science fiction circles as the founding editor of the seminal pulp magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmland. He was also an omnivorous memorabilia collector who once turned his L.A. home into a sort of screamatorium. His greatest achievement, however, was the discovering of Ray Bradbury, author of the classics Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles. Ackerman had placed a flyer in a Los Angeles bookstore for a science fiction club he was founding and teenage Ray Bradbury showed up. Later, Ackerman gave Bradbury the money to start his own science fiction magazine and paid the author's way to New York for a meeting that Bradbury said helped launch his career. Forrest Ackerman said the term sci-fi came to him in 1954 when he was listening to a car radio and heard the announcer say, Hi-fi! My dear wife said, Forget it, Forrest, it'll never catch on. Well, well, back in the 1930s, I understand you were like 18 years of age, and you sort of fall into the uh, the science fiction writers' club, headed by Forrest Ackerman. Can you tell us about Mr. Ackerman and the club? Oh God, yeah. I saw a notice at a bookstore in Hollywood, and I went down to a meeting. They met every Thursday night uh, at the Clifton's Cafeteria, which is still down on Broadway, and the food is still damn good. And it cost me 10 cents for a meeting. <laughs> And I didn't have money for food. And the Clifton's Cafeteria would give you a free meal if you asked for it. So I got a free meal every time I went there. And I met all the famous writers. And I was still in my last year in high school. And I met Robert Heinlein. And he became my friend and my teacher. And Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett. And they all became my friends and my teachers when I was 17, 18, and 19 years old. So I had... A wonderful relationship, and that caused me to really become a better writer. Anyway, uh, I was very pleased to have been able to go to Los Angeles and interview Ray Bradbury. It was a great thrill, and the person that made that possible is one of our Los Angeles correspondents, Bruce Bronstein, who now joins us from L.A. Welcome back, Bruce. Hey, Doug. How are you doing? We're doing well, Bruce, and I wanted to uh, to have uh, have you talk on, on this segment in particular, not just because you helped me uh, interview Bradbury, which I think we had a lot of fun with, but the fact that you actually uh, knew Forrest Ackerman a bit. Yeah, I'm a science fiction writer. I've, I've written a few science fiction books myself, and I've known Forrest Ackerman for many years. And he, he was like 
larger-than-life character. He was a real entertaining guy, and I had the pleasure of hanging out with him. I drove him around a few times. One time I drove him back from the Arrow Theater back to his uh, Acker Mansion in Los Feliz. <laughs> and we was... stopped at the house, house of Pies on Vermont and had a malted milk together like at 3 o'clock in the morning when he was telling me all about uh, his adventures with uh, L. Ron Hubbard. He was the guy who got L. Ron Hubbard to stop writing cowboy books and to get him into science fiction. Wow. And he claimed that Hubbard still owed him because he was his agent, and he owed him for all those books, his <laughs> agent's fee. But he was afraid to collect it because <laughs> well, they, they might come after him if he tried to push too hard. Well, he's probably a wise man. Uh, so I, I guess yeah. I, so. So I guess he he told L. Ron Hubbard to quit writing all that Western pulp fiction he was doing and do sci-fi. Yeah, and uh, he listened, and the rest was history. I guess so. He had the world's largest collection of science fiction. And every Saturday morning, he opened his house up to anybody who wanted to come. And his phone was Moonfan. That was his phone number. <laughs> did, you, did you ever go in and tour the house, Bruce? I did. Yeah, it was amazing. He had the, a lot of amazing things. But he had the armatures for the original King Kong. You know, King Kong was only 18 inches tall. Uh-huh. It had, like, foam rubber on it and little fur and stuff, and that's how they made King Kong. But most of the old, the foam rubber had, had worn off <laughs> by then. Did he, have like, did he have, like, robots and things like that? Or? He had robots. He had an incredible collection of science fiction paintings and memorabilia and cover art and original manuscripts. He saw his first science fiction magazine, like, in 1926, and he became hooked on it. He founded a newsstand at Santa Monica and Western. Then he started writing into the magazines, and he became one of the very first science fiction fans. He was never really a great writer, but he was a very, very enthusiastic um, fan and supporter, and he became a literary agent. He was the Ray Bradbury's agent, Isaac Asimov, A.E. Van Vogt, Kurt Siadamak, who was another friend of mine who was a great writer, Kurt Siadamak, and L. Ron Hubbard. And he was also an actor, and in many films he played bit parts. And he told me that one of the things he learned, like from being with all these people like uh, Boris Karloff and other people, is that when you're an actor in a scene, you don't just stand there. You, like, do something. You, like, focus in and do, like, little bits of action. And you're, you look busy. And that's one of the keys to, to, to being in a movie. If you're, you know, if you're not the main character... Is to, is to make yourself look uh, real and be, by occupying yourself doing something. Yeah, I think we talked about that in one of our shows. I think, oh, gosh, who was it we talked to with uh, about it? I think it was Eli Wallach about how Steve McQueen would do something to like like the scene in um, The Magnificent Seven. He reaches over and, like, dips his cowboy hat in the water and pours it over his head and just sort of, you know, draws your eyes to him over the other characters in the scene. Exactly. He learned that from from uh, people like Bela Lugosi, who he hung out with. And he always wore Bela Lugosi's ring. He had really? ring. Bella, yeah, he had a big Bela Lugosi ring that he always wore on his finger. Well, Lugosi hung out with Ed Wood. Did Ackerman, uh, did he hang out with Ed Wood, as far as you know? I, I, I'm sure he knew Ed Wood. I'm, I'm po positive. He knew Spielberg. He knew all these people. He, he was the first person to publish Stephen King. Really? He published Stephen King's first story when he was Stephen King was a teenager. 
Well, you know, Forrest Ackerman is certainly a man who's influenced uh, American culture, I guess you might say, even though he's probably you know, a name that I imagine very few of our listeners knew. Well, I guess one thing was, I guess he was independently wealthy when he was young. So he, did, you know, during the Great Depression, he didn't have to worry about, you know, finding, making a living. And he could concentrate on collecting science fiction and supporting writers and doing things that, and helping people like Bradbury out because he, he had a little bit of cash in the bank. And he, what, uh, there's another interesting facet to his life. He liked lesbians a lot. And he, um, he used to write lesbian novels. Uh, really? Yeah, in the 40s, he wrote for lesbian magazines and he wrote lesbian novels. And, and Bruce, I understand there's some kind of a science fiction museum Ackerman had something to do with? Yeah, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, put a lot of money into this giant uh, Frank Gehry building up in Seattle, near the Seattle uh, Tower, near the um, Space Needle. And part of the building is dedicated to science fiction. It's a science fiction museum. And a lot of the material they got, they bought it from Forrest Ackerman. He was able to preserve a lot of his collection that way. He was negotiating for many years with Tom Bradley, of Los Angeles mayor, to turn his collection into a, a giant science fiction museum in Los Angeles. But nobody ever came up with the money to build it. So he had to sell off its... That is really a shame. He, wanted to, he, he had this incredible stuff that nobody will ever have again, and he wanted to build this, this giant science fiction museum, and nobody would come up with the cash. None of the studios, nobody would do it. So he was forced to sell off piecemeal parts of his collection to survive later on in life. And, and that's basically what he did. So he sold a lot of it to Paul Allen. But, but like, when you go to that science fiction museum, everything is behind glass. You can't open any of the books. You can't look at them. Uh-huh. They're all just exhibits. Uh-huh. You know, but his, his house was cramped from floor to ceiling with uh, science fiction books. Even some of my books are there. Your, your books are there? Some of them, yeah. His wife bought some of my books for his collection. Outstanding. Did you, did you go through thumbing through stuff and poking your nose into different corners? Yeah, he had everything. I mean, he and he knew everybody. Anyway, Bruce, I, you know, you urged me on many occasions to have Ackerman as a guest, and I'm sorry to say I didn't follow up on that, and, 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 and now talking about him, I sure wish I had. There's a lot of good stuff. If you go up to YouTube and type in Forrest Ackerman, there's a lot of really good interviews and uh, clips. It's really worth seeing. All right, that's a hot tip, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to do uh, just that. Bruce Bronstein, uh, thanks for coming back and educating us about this, and we need to we need to do some stuff down in L.A. soon. Okay. Anyway, it's curious to know that Forrest Ackerman, in his own way, is responsible for L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth, possibly the worst <laughs> science fiction book I ever finished. It's certainly universally regarded as one of the worst science fiction movies ever made, although one of these nights in the winter, some, some cold night, 
when I have movie night at the house, we're going to get a bunch of folks together with some beer and pizza and actually watch Battlefield Earth all the way through. I hear if you can do that, it's actually quite a hoot. But uh, there was an article in New Scientist, an opinion piece uh, last month on the November 15th issue asking the question, Is Science Fiction Dying? The article had some fantastic uh, graphic art, including uh, a little, a little, uh, a little miniature poster of the day the Earth stood still, which they are remaking. And actually, when I promised earlier I wouldn't do any forward promoting, uh, I guess I lied because we're going to try and get Seth Showstack, Seth Shostack from the SETI Institute Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, who uh, I think has a bit part in the film and served as a technical advisor to the remake, which I think stars Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves in the old Michael Rennie role as Klautu. But the opinion piece in New Scientist was written by Marcus Chown, author of Quantum Theory Cannot Hurt You, and some children's science fiction books. The premise of the article is that uh, the furious pace of scientific discovery is making the future hard to predict. And meanwhile, sci-fi themes are increasingly found in mainstream literature. So does that mean the genre's days are numbered? The article asked six leading writers for their thoughts in the future of sci-fi. I did want to quote from the beginning of the article. I thought it was quite, uh, quite cool. Said Marcus Chown, Years ago, in one of my first assignments for New Scientist, I went to London's Dorchester Hotel to interview Carl Sagan, the American astronomer. Sagan was famous for his popular science books, the blockbuster TV series Cosmos, and his science fiction novel Contact, which was later turned into a film starring Jodie Foster. Rather overawed by Sagan's palatial suite and by meeting the man himself, I asked him which he preferred, science or science fiction. Science, he replied without hesitation, because science is stranger than science fiction. Said Chown, that was two decades ago. Since then, we've discovered that 73% of the mass energy of the universe is in the form of a mysterious dark energy, invisible stuff, whose repulsive gravity is speeding up cosmic expansion. We've discovered microorganisms surviving in total darkness, kilometers down in solid rock, and even around the cores of nuclear reactors. And we've seen the rise of superstring theory, which views the ultimate building blocks of matter as impossibly small strings that vibrate in a ten-dimensional space. If science was stranger than science fiction at the time Sagan spoke to me, it's even more strange now. But in this special sci-fi issue, they went on to, to, to reveal some of the latest excellent works of, uh, of science fiction and published the results of a poll done in the magazine about uh, the reader's all-time favorite books and movies. I was more familiar with the films, having seen four out of five. The top five choices of the readers were Blade Runner, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Serenity, Forbidden Planet, and The Matrix. I don't know much about Serenity, but the other four are, of course, classics. In the book department, the winners were number one, Dune. Number two, the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Number three, the humorous Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Number four was Ender's Game. And number five was the Hyperion series. And I must confess, I don't know anything about the last two entries on there. But people out there are, are big fans, and we'd like to hear from you. So please send us some input at info at radioparallax.com. I hope we'll hear from uh, our own Dr. Andy Jones on this subject at some point. And I know that Davis Enterprise has a writer uh, who, who deals with sci-fi every week, but, uh, but uh, I was unable to track her down. So, <laughs> dear readers, if you, if you, if you know this, uh, this writer, would you please have her drop us a line and perhaps come on the show to talk about science fiction? Because I think at some point, uh, 
at some point, even if you're not, a, if you don't think of yourself as a big fan of sci-fi, we all admire, uh, you know, some of its classic works. In fact, at work, somebody was mentioning something about, have you heard about this supposed uh, radio broadcast about Martians, about like back in 1938? And I said, why? Uh, I'd like to refer you to our archives on that one, because this year, uh, unremarked upon by us, was the 70th anniversary of Orson Welles' famous Mercury uh, Theater presentation of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. Of course, they said it was H.G. It was very loosely based on the H.G. Wells story. It reportedly took place in, uh, in contemporaneous New Jersey, which you may or may not be aware caused quite a stir when people tuned in and thought it was real. Anyway, let's close this segment with a little bit of science, not science fiction. This one comes from the field of geology. As noted in The Economist magazine last month, it's not just living organisms that evolve. Minerals do too. Much of their diversity has arisen in tandem with the evolution of life. Said the magazine, evolution has come a long way since Charles Darwin. Today it is not only animals and plants that are seen as having evolved over time, but also things that involve the hand of humans, like architecture, music, car design, and even government. Now, rocks, too, seem to be showing evolutionary characteristics. Rocks are made from minerals, which, like all matter, are composed of individual chemical elements. What makes minerals special is the way in which atoms of those elements are arranged in lattices, which create unique crystalline structures and shapes. Today, more than 4,000 different minerals can be found on Earth. When the planet began to be formed, however, few existed. Apparently, a team at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, D.C., headed by Robert Hazen and some others, set out to discover how minerals and how these more complex minerals evolved. They discovered that rocks and life evolved in parallel. Said Hazen, it's so obvious, you wonder why geologists didn't think of it before. Now, before the formation of the sun and the earth and all the planets, the chemical elements found in the periodic table were floating around in the primordial dust of our solar system. Some elements were more common than others, but everything from argon to zinc was there. Minerals, however, were almost entirely absent. Only a handful, like diamonds and olivine, or if, you're, if August is your birthstone, that's a form of peridot, could be found having been formed far away in exploding stars. But as planets like our Earth congealed and gravitational forces and particle collisions created the high temperatures necessary to melt the minerals that had been floating around in space, new minerals began diversifying. And on some, but not all, planets, uh, like Mars, Venus, and our Earth, basically rearranging of, of the plates and, and volcanic activity uh, baked and created new and more diversified elements. Hazen thinks in the beginning there were about 12 minerals in the dust grains of our, of our pre-solar system nebula, and that... Um, by the time the Earth and things like the Moon and Mercury uh, congealed, there were maybe 500 different minerals. But uh, once this conveyor belt of plate tectonics got going, it probably was up to about 1,000. And their guesstimates are there were probably 1,500 different types of minerals before uh, life began. The process accelerated because of things like oxygen in the atmosphere it created all sorts of mineral oxides. In fact, scientists think for perhaps a billion years, the oceans on the Earth were green and filled with iron. And once organisms created enough oxygen to precipitate all that iron out as rust, well, that's, begin that's when life really could get, uh, get going. 
It's a pretty fascinating uh, look at, at old data and a, and a way of thinking of things newly. But surely minerals and life uh, have interacted and influenced each other over the, uh, over the eons. And, uh, you know, this may give us some new insights. Uh, the planet Venus, as you may or may not know, is basically hell. It's got temperatures in the surface hot enough to melt lead, something like 800 degrees Fahrenheit. This exists on Venus because of a runaway greenhouse effect that's got a very thick carbon dioxide atmosphere 200 times denser than the Earth's. Well, it's curious to note that if you took all the limestone on Earth, all of the calcium carbonate that's in rocks and under the sea, and you were to basically uh, to bake that all off into gas, we'd have the same amount of CO2 as does Venus, which would make conditions for life here very unpleasant. Now, it's kind of curious. Science sometimes gives us a chance to test this hypothesis. Uh, the, the NASA's Mercury probe, uh, the MESSENGER uh, mission, is uh, set to, to go into orbit around Mercury in the next few years, and Dr. Hazen predicts that they're only going to find maybe 300 minerals on Mercury. And if there's more, it'll suggest there's more to Mercury than anybody originally thought in terms of volcanic activity and rearranging of its minerals. And of course, when that mineralogic report does come in for Mercury, we'll be the first to report on it here on Radio Parallax. Actually, Matt Kaplan may beat us to the punch on that one, but we're going to see what we can do. And I do want to plug Planetary Radio, which can be heard on KDVS at 9 a.m. every Friday. is an excellent source for this kind of data you get from these, uh, these probes in our solar system and just, and just interesting, fascinating, uh, exciting uh, planetary science data in general. And I know some of you out there don't necessarily love this stuff, but come on, come on. This is great, great stuff. Jeez. All right, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more in the third segment, so stay tuned. (laughs) 